From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. Today, a conversation with best-selling author Gavin Edwards. Gavin is one of our rare guests who's a journalist and author rather than screenwriter or TV creator. But much of Gavin's work is about the TV and film business, and I'm a giant fan of his. We had such a great time with David Skoff and Mark Harris as guests on the pod, who are also journalists first, uh, that I decided to invite Gavin on, and it turned into a really great, fun, funny conversation. Uh, Gavin is the author of a dozen different books, including biographical accounts of River Phoenix and Bill Murray and Tom Hanks. Gavin's work has appeared in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, and Wired, among many others. His work is often centered on Hollywood figures. Uh, you know, lots of these celebrity profiles can be really vapid and sensationalized. Not Gavin's. He goes deep. He's obviously really interested in psychology, and he delves into his subjects' families, their upbringing, their wants and desires, and gets at why they hold such appeal for us. In other words, he does exactly what we try to do in screenwriting when we invent a character. He draws three-dimensional, captivating figures who happen to be real-life people. By the time you finish one of his books, you feel like you're old friends with his subject. Uh, I met Gavin because I was interested in adapting one of his books into a movie. So I had my agents reach out to Gavin's agents, and we were able to make a deal. Uh, So I'm currently attempting a biopic about one of the movie stars that Gavin profiled. Hopefully more on that soon, though you all know how insane and impossible the movie biz is, so we'll see if anything comes of that. But using Gavin's research has been a giant help uh, in writing the project. Gavin and I had breakfast together recently in Manhattan and really hit it off. So here's Gavin uh, to continue that conversation. Let's do it. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft for their help getting the word out about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and much more. I have a screenwriter friend who says that she does most of her best writing in the shower. That you know, Whenever there's a story problem, she takes a shower, and there you go. By the time she right. gets out, it's solved. Yeah, I, I've read uh, a bunch of articles about theories about why that might be, because I find that too. And I think it's, for me anyway, I think it's, you know, in our normal writing lives, we're so anxious, we're so nervous about the quality of what we're putting down. The shower, just the, the steam, the hot water on you, it, it relaxes you. And if you can be, you know, your ideas are there, the answers are there. If you can just be relaxed, they can come out. I think it's true of a lot of things that that the tendency now that you can't even wait in line at the supermarket without whipping out your phone and checking like the newspaper and Twitter and your email. um, There's less time to wool gather than there was uh, even 20 years ago. And it's really important to be able to just like free associate for a while and not be able to read anything or write anything down, just like see where your brain goes. You're so right. I I can't remember the last time I was on an elevator and wasn't looking at my phone. And that's a bad habit. There's nothing on there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, So, you know, usually on the podcast, we have a lot of, um, we have a lot of screenwriters and um, TV writers. 
um, you have written about, I guess, more actors. Have you written about, have you done profiles of any writers? Of screenwriters? Yeah. Uh, I must have. Uh, I know I've done, uh, let's see, I uh, did something for the Times Magazine once on uh, uh, film editors, uh, okay. which was kind of fascinating. Um, uh, David Fincher's crew. Oh, of course, I've, I've done different showrunners. Uh, so, yeah. uh, Howard Gordon and Chris Carter, and I'm sure a lot of other people. I'm hmm. uh, not thinking off the top of my head, but uh, but yes. And are you more drawn? I mean, so some of your books are about, of course, Bill Murray and um, River Phoenix, and there's one on Tom Hanks. Um, are you more drawn to actors, or do you simply find that they make better long-form subjects, or uh, you know, readers are more interested, or what? What draws you to to actors? I, um, I think it's really just readers are more interested. Uh-huh. Uh, that if you could uh, tell me that I could do sort of three books on a row on uh, the you know sort of editors or costume designers or other people, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, who are not in front of the title, I would love that. Uh, but uh, uh, people care about like the faces that they see. Right. And so hopefully you, A, do it in an interesting way, but B, you use them as a crowbar to get in and say, okay, how is this whole thing put together and what else can we talk about while we're talking about this uh, incredibly famous person? Right. So so let's pick one of them, like, like Bill Murray. Uh, sure. You wrote a terrific book about Bill Murray. So how, I guess, how did you choose Murray and how did you go about doing the research for a, a figure that is so sort of wily? So I uh, wanted... Uh, I got to the point. Um, I had done the River Phoenix book, which uh, I know you know quite yes. well. Um, and I was very happy with it. Um, but I also found it was uh, hard to uh, convince people who was who were not already River Phoenix fans to read it. Uh, that, uh, you know, sort of no matter how loudly I go out and beat the drum and say this guy was brilliant and you need to know the story, uh, people have already made up their mind on River Phoenix to a certain extent. And I said, well, if I'm going to put a year's worth of work into something, which is about the amount of time it takes me to do a book. I want to do something, I want to do a big American story, was the phrase I had. Um, uh, somebody who feels like it's going to be worth the time and people are really going to want to sink their teeth into after I put all that work into right. it. Uh, and um, I uh, sat down with the legal pad and I made a list. Uh, <laughs> uh, and um, you know, it was just like, uh, crazy brainstorming, but at the end of it, the two people who seemed the most compelling to me of uh, uh, I had something to say about them and they had not been written about uh, in book length 500 times already were uh, Bill Murray and Prince. And, <laughs> very different figures. Uh, very different figures, but both, I think, worthy of obsession. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and both uh, in their own way uh, very entertaining and both in their own way incredibly private. Uh, right. And so... I had no sense of uh, how to get access to Prince. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, sort of like, I know where Paisley Park is. Right. I could go, you know, sort of like hang out by the gate. But barring that, but Bill Murray, I kind of got that, you know, sort of I knew um, that he deliberately made it hard to be tracked down, uh, uh, that it was, uh, that he, had a, he had a 1-800 number. He did not have a Is that true? Publicist. Yes. Oh, it's absolutely true. It, uh, he doesn't have no agent, no manager, no publicist. You call a one eight hundred number and you leave a message saying, "Please call me back." If you want Bill Murray to be in your movie, um, and uh, you, you've written a script, you think it's perfect for him, you call that. Uh, you tr- 
find somebody who knows the number, uh, you call the number, uh, and uh, you leave a message saying, like, hi, Bill, um, you know, sort of, I just wrote this uh, screenplay called St. Vincent, uh, I think you'd be great for it, um, uh, here's what it is, and if he likes what he hears, uh, then his lawyer calls you back and says, <laughs> send a one-page letter to this P.O. box, this oh is what Bill is this week, uh, and then if he likes the letter, they say, okay, uh, send a, a script to this other P.O. box, because he's moved on since last week. <laughs> Oh else. my God! Uh, and then you know, sort of, if he likes it enough, time goes by, and uh, maybe the, he calls you up out of the blue, or maybe he says, "I'm, uh, you know, would you like to come to France on Thursday?" And uh, if he likes you, uh, then he's in. Uh, but certainly, and- that's not how you know Wes Anderson is getting. I mean, they're old friends, I guess. But if if I'm David Fincher and I want Bill Murray in my movie, I got to call the one eight hundred number. I'm David Fincher. I probably know somebody who's Bill Murray's friend. Right. Uh, and uh, for example, uh, Cameron Crowe uh, was able to go to the front of the line because Emma Stone was in the movie and she knew him from Zombie Lad. And she said, right. "Oh, Bill would be great for this. Why don't I just text him?" Uh, <laughs> right. Makes it easier. Um, so uh, there's a completely different system if you're already pals with him. Like right. Wes Anderson at this point, he's in every single movie. He's obviously not using the one eight hundred number anymore. <laughs> right. But he couldn't get. In uh, the first movie, um, the Bottle Rocket, uh, that you know, he, uh, right. the uh, James Conn part, uh, like he wanted Bill Murray, and oh, really? everybody, uh, like they kept on sending letters and packages, and uh, they just were not able to like get through to get him to do it. Hmm. I think at the time he even had an agent, but even when he had an agent, he ignored the agent most of the time. <laughs> so. Were you able to talk to any um, screenwriters who had worked with Murray? I don't know if you were able to talk to Harold Ramis before he died or, um, or, or any of the screenwriters who, who Murray has worked with. Um, I uh, uh, spoke a little bit with uh, uh, Danny Rubin. Um, oh, and, Groundhog uh, Day. Yeah, cool. Yes. Um, and uh, I think, uh, is, does Reitman have a co-writing credit on uh, those movies, or is he? He's certainly a creative force behind it. You talked to um, him. And, uh, and uh, he and I sat down and uh, uh, talked about it. And uh, I've also actually once saw the Jason Reitman. Uh, he does these wonderful um, uh, live reads of screenplays right. uh, where he recasts them. And when he did Ghostbusters, he said that he just had to, uh, that you know all of Bill's lines were improvised. That was remarkable. He was looking at the screenplay and wow. just like Bill's dialogue just was not there. And he went through, you know, sort of like uh, a DVD and transcribed it so it would be part of what they did. That's amazing. And he said it was basically like a mumblecore tone poem. That <laughs> sort of like Bill got the idea of the scene, he knew what he was supposed to do, and he sort of like hit the plot marks and the emotional marks, but it was just 100% in his own language. That's really interesting. Because yeah. his lines, I mean, he has some, some lines that are still quoted 30 years later from Ghostbusters. Yeah. No, um, and he's really, uh, and I think most movies, uh, there's, he is at this point respectful of some people. I think he's not, he didn't rewrite um, uh, Lost in Translation on the fly. I think uh, Wes Anderson, he's decided, like, knows how to write dialogue and he's right. not uh, going to do it for himself. Right. Well, uh, improv if, just doesn't work in some kinds of movies if everyone else right. is doing it off a of script. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He was in Hamlet. <laughs> right. Good point. He was great. That's right. I forgot that. He was Polonius, wasn't he? He's great as Polonius. He was great. Yes. Yeah. He made that no, part really should, funny. He could do more Shakespeare. 
You know, like he's it's completely the, in his skill set. Right. Uh, so, but many movies he's done, he just shows up, like looks at the screenplay for the first time, like that day, and says, "Okay, you know, sort of, I get what you're trying to do here, but now let's make it good." Which is what got him to trouble in Garfield. That he had just sort of like eyeballed it, uh, said, "Well, I'm sure it'll work out." Uh, it's written by Joel Cohen of the Cohen Brothers, and then he got into the recording studio and discovered it was written by a different Joel Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, that can't be true. Yeah, it's, it's so uh, he swears up and down it's true, uh, and uh, I my That's guts of it, you know, like it. You know, uh, I think he really doesn't pay that much attention. Now, did somebody tell him at some point and he ignored it and he just kept on going? That seems entirely possible. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, what else? What are your what are your sort of tricks for going? I mean, w- one of the things that make your your profiles um, of of these actors so great is that it's not just sort of um, sensationalized and surface. You really make these characters into into three dimensional figures. Do you have any do you just follow what interests you in terms of like you know sort of hunting down their psychology uh what are your sort of tricks for getting under their skin well um so i've been writing uh profiles of uh honestly more musicians than actors but actors as well for uh, a couple of decades now for like details and rolling stone so by the time you get to sort of book length there's a sense of it's a chance to go as deep as you can, like, all right, I don't have just a thousand words, I have, you know, 80,000 words. Mm -hmm. But when I'm sitting down talking with somebody, um, you know, sort of like the rules of thumb, uh, and there aren't even that many, uh, it's do as much homework as you can. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of like by the time I walk in, I should know everything that there is to know. If I can have seen all of somebody's movies, sometimes time doesn't allow, but I do as you know, like as much of that as I can. Right. Uh, you know, let's let's not rehash what's already been done. Let's like read the clips. Let's have a deeper conversation than we've had previously. Right. Um, and so part of what that means is I spent so long, Aaron. You wouldn't even imagine just figuring out what my first question is going to be. Because hmm. I feel like if you're a Hollywood actor, um, you do a lot of interviews, and yeah. I do you know, a small number of interviews just as an author, and I know how quickly it can get, like, deadening an autopilot when you get asked the same five questions over and over. Especially about a and project so, you did 20 years ago for two weeks. Yeah, Sure. Or uh, if, uh, or even if it's the project you did last year. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of, uh, it could uh, li- not literally be a junket, but if you're the 37th interview, like, you might have all the goodwill in the world, but you've, you've been asked a lot of questions already. Right, right. Uh, and so... Um, I just spent a lot of time coming up with the first question, which uh, is hopefully clever and penetrating, but more than anything signals you can't do this one on autopilot. Right, uh, right. You know, sort of like, I'm here, you know, sort of this is not your typical interview, please pay attention, let's engage. Uh, and then even if you loop around to some of the uh, questions that everybody else asks at that point, you know, you've got a connection with the person. That's smart. And then the other thing is just be a good listener. Uh, that uh, early on in the first, like, two or three years when I was doing this, I would sometimes go home and like read the transcript afterwards. And it's like, Oh, why, why didn't I ask that follow-up question? You know, sort of like now I really want to know this other thing. And so I just really learned to dial in and be super attentive to what the person was saying. And uh, so in that moment, if I say, Oh, there's something else I want to know. And right. at that point, it's a conversation uh, more than just sort of like running down your list of questions. Makes sense. And it's sort of shocking how rare that is uh, actually listening 
Um, you know, I, even with this podcast, you know, I find that all the time, certainly in the beginning of the podcast, I was, you know, I wrote down in advance a list of questions that I wanted to get to and, and subjects that I wanted to ask them about. And because I had done that, I wasn't um, listening as closely as I would like to have been to their answers. Because if I had been, there would have been a lot of follow-up questions, but I was so eager to get to my next subject or my next question that I didn't take the time to actually listen to them and follow up. And that's... And that's almost always better. If you can go in always, deeper. Yeah. And then at the end, uh, like I like to have the list uh, because then you can just sort of quickly scan at the end. Right. And you almost always find, we got to everything. Or, oh, here's the one that I forgot. It's not, I have 18 areas we never covered. What's going <laughs> right. on? Right. Um, the person of all the people I've interviewed, by the way, who is the most dialed in was Rick Rubin. Um, huh. uh, you know, sort of, it was just like a half hour interview in like a hotel ballroom and he took off his shoes and he sat cross-legged <laughs> on like sort of right. a, uh, a hotel chair. But he was so attentive to everything I was asking him that, you know, he's a guy who's got 7,000 different things going on. Right. For the time I had him, he could not have been more present. I can see that. Yeah. He was on, um, Dave Letterman's new Netflix, uh, show and he, he gave off the same kind of vibe, just really cross-legged, but like really focused and in the yeah. present. Yeah. Um, and this fall you've got a book coming out on Tom Hanks, right? I do. Uh, the world according to Tom Hanks. And uh, so how was that process? Um, so in that case, uh, um, I had, uh, uh, not met Tom, um, and I uh, sent him a letter. Um, so um, uh, Tom is obsessed with uh, typewriters. Right. Uh, There's even a documentary about it. Yeah. Yes, he, he's in the California typewriter documentary, and uh, he wrote that collection of short stories, uh, right. Common Type, where every single one is themed uh, to a typewriter. Right. Um, and so I figured, well, if you want to correspond with Tom Hanks, you you go find a typewriter. <laughs> this is amazing. This is like the 1-800 number for Murray. These guys are so eccentric. Yeah, it's, it's the way in. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I didn't have a typewriter. I haven't had one since I was uh, you know, in high school. Right. And uh, nobody I knew had a typewriter. I actually had to uh, go to the public library, which had one tucked away in the corner. And uh, so I uh, sat there and uh, without a backspace key, you keep, ah, you know, third <laughs> sentence, I screwed it up again, new sheet of paper. Uh, but I sent him a note and I got back a 100% uh, charming letter from him in wow. which uh, he, like, uh, it was the, he was saying no, but he was doing it in the nicest way possible where I had said, hey, could I just have a little of your time? And he had uh, responded essentially, how about September of next year? Knowing full well it was way past my deadline, uh, but uh, he did it in uh, just sort of like the most encouraging, right. friendly way possible. I'm like, well, I can't be mad at this guy. Right. Um, and what I, uh, but what also happened was because we had made that contact was then as I reached out to other people, like people he had made movies with and people he had been and, uh, done like the Shakespeare Festival with when he was uh, 19 years old and just sort of uh, you know, co-stars and uh, co-workers, in each case, if they said, oh, I should check with Tom first before I talk to you, whenever they did, he always said yes. Oh, that's so, great. So he didn't sit down with me, but he gave everybody else the green light. Well, that's that huge. Yeah. yeah. And does the book have, um, does it have sort of a focus? Does it have a, a thesis, for lack of a better word? Or is it really just sort of a picture of him? So um, uh, it was... Uh, the thing with the Bill Murray book uh, was that it's organized around uh, the idea that... Um, 
uh, Bill's all these crazy Bill Murray stories. If he shows up at your party, he washes the dishes and he leaves, <laughs> right. uh, or he steals like a golf cart at 3 a.m. in Stockholm and uh, drives around the city. And everyone l- treasures these stories. Right. And the more I started, uh, at first it was just going to be, well, I'll collect them. And then the more I looked into it, um, and then eventually I got to talk with him about it, um, it was like, oh, he's not just doing this to be wacky. It's actually like reflective of a philosophy that he's secretly teaching us all how to live. Um, and uh, so when uh, I said I want to do another book like that, but frankly, there's lots of people who don't have an animating philosophy like that. You could say they're the you know sort of really good actor, like somebody like Robert De Niro. You know, is sort of a wonderful actor. I don't think you could look at his public behavior and say, here's the thing that animates him and that he cares about, and how you could live your life like Robert De Niro. It right. doesn't add up in the same way. But I felt like with Tom Hanks, it did, um, and. Uh, the thing uh, that, you know, sort of like is the core of it, which uh, people both love about him or in some case they find really off-putting, is, you know, his reputation, which is well-earned, is that he's a really nice guy. And so um, the uh, opening chapter of the book is called, you know, sort of preface, the nice manifesto. <laughs> and uh, so go to like, well, what does that mean? Because a lot of times in our modern culture, we use nice, you know, it means bland, it means vanilla, it means a saltine. Uh, and saying that in fact, he's a fascinating guy who's got like a rich, like inner landscape. Um, and so if we drill down on that and look at the things he cares about and what like his passions are, um, then that's interesting. And it uh, say, how does that add up to niceness? And like, what does that tell us about him as opposed to just the hitting the blow by blow of, and then he made bosom buddies and then he starred in Splash. And after that was Bachelor Party. So trying to get inside like his mental landscape and what animates him. Right. You know, people do obviously always talk about him as such a nice guy. Do you think that it's that phenomenon of most celebrities are sort of, um, you know, in their own bubble and can be kind of jerks? um, And so he's a nice guy among celebrities. Do you think that if he was just your buddy who, you know, worked with you at the local whatever shop, uh, that we would think of him as a really nice guy? Or is it the celebrity (laughs) bubble? Yeah, there was an old Onion piece about... uh, Oh, who's the Boston Celtics uh, three-point shooter? Um, Ray Allen. Um, And uh, the headline was something to the effect of, you know, sort of like, uh, Ray Allen, not a total jerk. Uh, (laughs) And it was just sort of like, and everyone is falling over themselves saying what a wonderful human being he was because when somebody slipped on pavement, he actually said, are you okay? And he walked into the stadium. Right. Uh, (laughs) And And by all accounts, Ray Allen does seem like a nice guy. (laughs) You know, uh, he loves his mom. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but you know, just sort of not being a hundred percent self-absorbed pro athlete, right. uh, you get graded on a curve, and right. I'm sure he does get graded on a curve. But by the same token, just talking with people who are not his pal, um, the, he seems like one of those people who, um, having gotten this uh, ridiculous level of fame, um, tries to go out of his way to. Um, not a make everyone around him comfortable with it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like rather than you know sort of like bash you over the head with it. Um, and I think if he were not, uh, if he had ended up with like the original idea of uh, I'm going to like 
uh, run the lighting board uh, for theater productions. I think everyone would remember him. It's like, oh yeah, it's him. He's the for the show. He's a great guy. You'll right, like him. Right. Yeah. And the, the couple times I've seen him in person at like a Q and A for uh, one of his movies, he's always so deferential to the. You know, I saw him with with Clint Eastwood uh, for Sully, and he was just you know he was calling Clint Eastwood boss the whole time, and he was just so <laughs> deferential to him. And and so there is an element of it's not. I, I won't go so far as to say it's manipulation, but he clearly knows like his standing. And so he knows if he makes everyone else around him look great and, um, you know, really uh, talks about how talented they are. He just comes off like the world's greatest guy. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he is smart enough to know this is the best face to put forward in the world. But I think it's not that he's sort of like the two-faced about it and he's right. a seething jerk in his private life who goes home and kicks the dog. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, the other person I've always heard this about, uh, I've never met him myself, uh, but Paul McCartney, uh, having been more famous than most people on the planet since right. uh, you know, a young age, um, uh, everyone I know who's ever met him said that, you know, sort of like he went out of his way to try just like, tone down the hysteria, okay, now let's be human beings together, right. which you kind of have to do. Uh, like, otherwise, you're only going to know eight people in the world. Right. I love that. Yeah. My sister uh, saw Paul McCartney jogging in Los Angeles, and, uh, you know, they were out in, in the woods, basically. And so Paul could have gotten very scared because my sister started following him, basically, <laughs> running behind him. And he stopped at a clearing to tie his shoe. And she walked over to him, and she said... I just want you to know, I love the Beatles, which I think is just such an amazing, funny thing to say to Paul McCartney. And she said he was just incredibly gracious and sweet about it. You know, he's probably heard that a billion times in his life uh, and could have been a jerk, but he was totally great and made her day. And she still tells that story. That's lovely. I mean, yeah, you are. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, you know, I wanted to ask a little bit about your your writing habits when you're when you're deep in one of these profiles. Are you? It sounds a little bit like research is the heavy lifting, and the writing is maybe uh, it, it gets a little bit less time. Or or do I have that reversed? Um, it's a fifty fifty operation, okay. and uh, it's one of the things I like about what I do that. Uh, you know, sort of uh, in, when it's going, when I'm getting the access I want, uh, it means something like I, uh, and this doesn't happen as much as it used to because uh, there isn't as much space in magazines as there used to be. But ideally, I spend like real amount of time with somebody. I like ride the tour bus for a couple of days or I get to sort of sit in the corner of their office uh, while they're putting together a new TV show and just like watch them taking phone calls and seeing what they're doing or like when Stephen Colbert was first doing the Colbert reports, like, you know, he's on the phone with Cheap Trick explaining, you know, like, this is what I want out of the theme song. And, and you know, 90% of it ends up not being useful, but then you get the moment that's really telling and really adds up to something. And you say, right. okay, I've got a corner uh, stone here. Right. Um, so uh, uh, when I did uh, the uh, River Phoenix book, I, it was almost exactly um, 50% research time, 50% writing time. Hmm. Uh, that I just sort of knew how much time I had to do the book, and I sort of drew a line in the sand and said, this is the day I stopped doing research, and I could go on and do it for, like, two more years, but I don't have two more years. Right. So, you know, like, on you know, Monday the 11th, whatever it was, that's when I had to, you know, sort of, like, get out of a pad of paper and start writing. Right, right. Um, so uh, what I do find is that of my writing time, um, a huge amount of it is the structuring of it um, uh, rather than the actual sitting down and writing the paragraph. Uh, um, that 
um, I can sometimes spend a day or two just sort of like walking in circles and figuring out, you know, sort of like uh, how am I going to pull this together and what's the thread and uh, uh, and especially what's the lead paragraph and trying sort of because once I've got the the lead graph, a lot of it flows out of that. Like, okay, that's going to work, and then you can do this, and then you can do that, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, then once I'm in the zone, sometimes I can write the whole thing, like knock it out in a few hours. Uh, but only once I've got the skeleton of this is the order mm-hmm. things are going to happen. That makes all the sense because your, you know, your your books really do feel uh, they read like stories rather than um, you know uh, point to point to point of the person's life. It's much more like a flowing character study. Uh, so that makes all the sense that it just sort of oh, flows. That, 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 thank you. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very nice thing to say. Um, do you ever uh, do you ever have uh, profile, you know, subjects call you with not nice things to say? Do they ever say you completely misrepresented me in this? How dare you? Wow. Um, hard, the funny thing is uh, that there's hardly ever contact after the fact, whether it came out uh, for good or bad. Uh, that just sort of, uh, and there's this moment at the end of the reporting where things have gone well. We're like, yeah, hey, this was great. Let's hang out sometime when the tape recorder's not running and you trade information. Right. And then nobody ever follows up. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and early in my career, I'm like, oh, well, you know, sort of like Sean Aston and I like got along really well. Maybe we'll give him a call. And I did. And we talked. And it's like, but we're not going to hang out this weekend. Right. So, yeah, it's like, all right. It's, it's more just like being friendly and it's right. a little ritual that you go through. Uh, so, um, uh, I don't think, I can't think of a time when, uh, anyone's, uh, called up to say they were upset. What does happen sometimes is that, oh, uh, um, the, the one time I can think of actually was, um, the, I heard uh, through the grapevine that Jack Black was, uh, very dismayed, but it was not because of anything I wrote. It was just because it was shorter than he expected it was going to be. Uh, <laughs> All right. As far as those things go, that's not such yeah, bad like criticism. We had a half hour on the phone and it ran as like a half page. And I think he thought it was going to be some like lavish two page spread or something. Right. And I didn't find out until years later when I was supposed to interview him again. And I was told, oh no, he remembers you and he's still mad about it. Oh that. my God. That's great. Uh, what more often happens these days, I've been doing this long enough, I'll run into somebody like Rivers Cuomo from Weezer, and, you know, the first time I interviewed him would be, like, 20 years earlier, and just, it weirds everybody out for a minute, like, wow, you're still doing this, and I'm still doing this, and here we are again, and nobody has anything profound to say about it, but you just have to kind of take a moment and collect yourself, and then say, all right, well, we're here, let's do it. <laughs> right, <laughs> it makes sense. Um, yeah, I can't stop thinking about how... Uh, Donald Trump has just been trashing Bob Woodward for his profile in the most recent book. Uh, I guess you're lucky you uh, you don't go after people that incendiary and petty and small-minded. Um, so I asked you for uh, for a clip to play uh, that involved one of the uh, subjects um, of your work, and you picked something that Bill Murray is in. Um, this is from Fantastic Mr. Fox, written by Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach, who's one of my all-time favorite writers. Um, anybody who hasn't seen Baumbach's first movie, Kicking and Screaming, oh my God, should pause oh. right now and go watch it. Uh, do you love that <laughs> movie too? I love that movie. Yeah, it's so good. Um, all right, so the scene we're going to hear right now is between uh, Mr. Fox, played by George Clooney, and a badger, played by Bill Murray, 
for those who don't know the movie, I should mention it's stop motion animation. So we're actually watching sort of a cartoon fox and a cartoon badger have a conversation. Right. Um, the movie um, is based... And the offices of the law firm Beaver, Badger, uh, and Badger. Uh... <laughs> right. Um, the movie is based on the Roald Dahl book. Uh, it's about a fox who steals food from three farmers, and the farmers are trying to kill him, uh, but Mr. Fox keeps outwitting them. And in this scene, Mr. Fox talks to Badger about moving his home into a new tree. And he learns about these three nasty farmers who are hunting him. Uh, so let's play the, uh, the clip and then we'll talk about it. Don't buy this tree, Foxy. You're borrowing at nine and a half with no fixed rate. Plus, moving into the most dangerous neighborhood in the country for someone of your type of species. You're exaggerating, Badger. <laughs> I'm sugarcoating it, man. This is Bogus, Bunce, and Bean. Three of the meanest, nastiest, ugliest farmers in the history of this valley. Really? Tell me about them. All right. Walt Bogus is a chicken farmer, probably the most successful in the world. He weighs the same as a young rhinoceros. He eats three chickens every day for breakfast, lunch, supper, and dessert. That's 12 in total per diem. Nate Bunce is a duck and goose farmer. He's approximately the size of a pot-bellied dwarf, and his chin would be underwater in the shallow end of any swimming pool on the planet. His food is homemade donuts with smashed up goose livers injected into them. Frank Bean is a turkey and apple farmer. He invented his own species of each. He lives on a liquid diet of strong alcoholic cider, which he makes from his apples. He's as skinny as a pencil, as smart as a whip, and possibly the scariest man currently living. The local human children sing a kind of eerie little rhyme about him. Here, listen to this. And summation, I think you just got to not do it, man. That's all. I understand what you're saying and your comments are valuable, but I'm going to ignore your advice. The cuss you are. The cuss am I? Are you cussing with me? No, you cussing with me. Don't cuss and point. You're going to cuss with somebody. You're not going to cuss with me, you little cuss. Just by the tree. Okay. That was great. Um, so what do, you, uh, what do you like about that scene? All right. So I, uh, as you know, the uh, you know, sort of like exposition scenes uh, can be really painfully thudding. Uh, and uh, so here you have something that's incredibly laid on its feet and sets up the entire movie. Um, and it uh, not only introduces, you know, like our main antagonists, but does a plants all sorts of seeds that are going to pay off as the movie goes along. Right. Like it's the first time um, that you see in the movie, I think, that you know, they're, we're going to use cuss in the place of any uh, given uh, curse word, right. which becomes you know, just sort of like, uh, it starts off as a creative way of saying we're making a kid's movie, how do we handle the language? Um, and then pays off uh, like late in the movie where you see uh, there's a backdrop uh, wall where there's a piece of graffiti where someone's just spray-painted cuss. <laughs> <laughs> but I also love that even as He's just sort of like laying out this basic, is he going to buy the tree or uh, not buy the tree? 
it plays right into the central theme of the movie, which is the like thin veneer between sort of civilization and we're just animals underneath, which right. is one of the things that Mr. Fox is wrestling with the whole way. And it becomes just great, like, you know, the actual dialogue, it becomes just snarling and growling. Uh, like, uh, how like much purer can you get than that? Right. Completely agree. Did you get a chance to talk to anyone involved with the movie when you were um, working on the Bill Murray book? I... I did not. I mean, other than Bill himself, yeah. um, uh, who talked a little bit about uh, just sort of like working with Wes Anderson overall. And uh, uh, one of the things he talked about was just sort of that um, having a certain, I think he puts it like sort of tripping rhythm to how the dialogue is said, mm-hmm. um, that you uh, sort of uh, want to be like sort of light on your feet like a boxer. And that every now and then uh, when there's new people in a uh, Wes Anderson ensemble, just make sure that they like get comfortable with the rhythm of it. Mm. Right. Completely. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, like you were saying, you know, there, there is so much exposition in the scene, but it is done in such a creative way. Um, you know, people weren't able to, to see, obviously, but, you know, when uh, the Bill Murray character starts to talk about the three farmers, there are cutaways so that we get to see each of these farmers in their own habitat. Um, and it's just, it's so artfully done. Um, you know, this is a scene that could just be, you know, two people, in a, two animals in a, in a room talking and, and get very boring very quickly. But because of these cutaways, because of the heightened dialogue, um, because of the conflict between them, you know, which reaches its peak when they start snarling at each other, it becomes just a really exciting, gripping scene. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily anyone's favorite scene in the movie, but you just look at it and it's like a beautiful minute and a half, two minutes that like, and once you zero in there, like it's a little play. That's all you watch. Yeah, completely. And I love the performances that neither actor chooses to change his voice at all, even though they're playing an animal, that they're doing it (laughs) just like they would in any movie. Yeah. Uh, that his original version, uh, the conception of the character was that because it was a badger, he was going to do it with a Wisconsin accent. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. And I think he actually studied up and listened to like Wisconsin public radio and was ready to do it. And That's so funny. Like, and he shows yeah. up and Wes is like, no, just. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, listen, Gavin, we've kept you for a while here. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been really fun. Aaron, it's been such a pleasure. Yeah, and I will, uh, I will talk to you very soon. Sounds great. Okay. Take care now. Bye. All right. That was Gavin Edwards. That was really fun. Um, Thanks so much to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please subscribe on iTunes. You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy. Or email me at aaron.tracy at yale.edu. See you next week.